Um, let's pray. Father, we do pray as this uh, uh, virus spreads, Lord. Uh, we pray for people in Italy, in China, in South Korea, in Japan, and all the earth, Lord, that you would have mercy, that you would spare, that you would show Jesus and show your compassion, and that you would uh, work in the midst of this to move your people to be agents of love, risking themselves for the sake of their friends and neighbors and associates who need grace. Uh, Lord, protect us, we pray, and watch over this city. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's prepare now for the reading and the preaching of God's word. Please join me now in prayer. Our Lord and our God, as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit and soften our hearts that we may discern your ways. Fill us with your light through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A reading from Paul's epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1, beginning with verse 11, the word of the Lord. Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. Over the years, I've noticed that any time that I go to a concert, any time I'm watching a halftime show, any time I'm at a wedding reception, I'm always trying to guess what's going to be the last song. What tune is still going to be in people's heads later that night? What final lyrics will I be given to ponder? What will set the appropriate mood for things to end on? It probably stems back to my time working as a wedding DJ where in helping people prepare for their wedding receptions, I would ask these couples two questions. How do you want the night to be remembered? And what do you want to end the night on? What's that final song? And what they choose usually says a lot about the one that chose it, about what's most important to them, about what they want for those who hear it, about how they want everything to be remembered. And I mention all of this because as we come to the end of the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to John, Jesus has already spent the last three years um, on tour, you might say, throughout the, the villages and the towns of ancient uh, Palestine. His greatest hits at that point would have included messages like the Sermon on the Mount. It would have included parables so memorable that even today we still use the phrase, a good Samaritan. And so at the very end of it all, as Jesus brings his ministry to an end, what final word does he have for his audience? What's his closer? What message does he have for the world? 
That's what we see in John chapter 12, beginning on verse 27. Your pew Bibles, it starts on page 1672, or you can follow along on the screen or the memorial app. This is the word of our Lord. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So what do we see in Jesus' last public sermon? Well, the themes that he revisits are just as diverse as the audience that he's speaking to, those gathered from all over for the Passover holiday. But you could think of it all like this. Jesus has a message for the world, a message about himself about us, and about the cross. First, Jesus brings a message to us actually about himself. If you look in verse 46, Jesus says that he has come into the world sent by God as a light, which for Jesus is not a new teaching. In John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 9, he claims the exact same thing right before healing someone born blind, healing them as a sign, a sign that he is the light of the world. But here Jesus more fully unpacks what it means for him to be that light. You see, lights by nature uh, help us to see. 
They reveal for us what's already there, but we can't see without it. So in verse 45, uh, Jesus says of the one who sees him, when he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. See, the message of Jesus to the world is that he's sent by God to reveal God, to show us what God is like. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what God is like, take a look. In Colossians 1, what we heard earlier in the scripture reading, the apostle Paul speaks of Jesus this way. He is the image of the invisible God. And then by him all things were created. To meet Jesus was literally to meet your maker. And to hear his word was to hear the very words of God. He says in verse 49, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. And then later, whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus is saying to his hearers, if you want to hear from God, if you really want to know what God thinks about a matter, if you want to be able to distinguish the voice in your head from the voice of God, Jesus says, listen up. Putting it all together. Jesus wanted the world to know that he didn't just come talking about God, but talking as God. And in doing so, illuminating for us the nature and the character of God, showing us who he is, and realizing this changes everything. Uh, about a week ago, I was having a conversation with my fiance about favorite movies, and I couldn't tell you which mine was. But if you ask me my favorite type of movie, easy. Mystery, thrillers, with a twist. Usually made in the 90s. In one of those films, the mystery is the identity of one character that we'll just call Miser Jose. As the story goes on, you hear more and more about this character. Maybe you start to form like images of them in your mind, imagining what it would be like if they walked on the screen, how they would walk, how they would talk, the expressions on their face, how they would interact with people. But then the twist comes and you realize that you've already met him. You've already seen him. He's been right there in front of you the whole time. But it's not what you would expect, not who you would expect, not a new character you've not yet to meet, uh, but one that you've seen the whole time, one who's been there the whole time, the one who's been telling you about him. Right there in front of your eyes, but your own assumptions kept you from seeing it. And yet when you realize that the one that you've heard about and the one that you've seen are one in the same, it totally reorients everything else that you've seen from him or heard about him, and it suddenly takes on a new meaning for you. As the hair on the back of your neck begins to stand up as your eyebrows start to raise and your mouth drops. Suddenly you, you're revisiting all of these past scenes with new eyes, but with a new perspective, saying, well, wait a minute, well, well that means, and then this means, let me tell you, having seen it the first time, I immediately wanted to go watch it again because I wanted to revisit everything in light of what I now knew. The reason why I love these types of movies is because the wow factor, the awe and the wonder of seeing everything you've already seen but in a new way and a new light. That's what the Gospels become when we take Jesus' words about himself to heart. Jesus hasn't just been telling us what God is like, he's been showing us, which means we don't have to guess what God is really like or assume that somehow we'll never really know. It means that when we've messed up again and that inner voice is condemning us, telling us that we're worthless, we are unloved, we are unworthy of anyone's care or affection, and we assume God must feel the same way, 
we can look at Jesus' words, gently restoring the cowardly Peter or his welcome invitation to the swindling Zacchaeus and know that that's how God meets us in our soft-hearted repentance. That's how he pursues us in our brokenness with his grace. It means that when we're grieving over the loss of a loved one and wonder if God really cares, we can see Jesus weeping over the death of Lazarus and see in that that God does care, that he weeps too, and that he is indeed near to the brokenhearted. Jesus comes to us as that light, illuminating the reality of who God is as God in the flesh, which is why he says in verse 44, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but also in the one who sent me. It's a message not only from Jesus, but the message about Jesus. You see, when Jesus calls out to God as Father in verse 28, the voice responding in kind confirms Jesus' unique relationship with and his identity as God. Those miraculous signs that John mentions in verse 37 testifies to the same thing, that, that Jesus doesn't, just wasn't just another good teacher. And here's why all of that actually matters. You see, whatever we do with Jesus, worship, follow, obey him, or ignore, neglect, and reject him, Jesus is telling the world, that's what you're doing with God. And so as the light of the world, Jesus tells us what to do with that light. Beginning in verse 35, he calls us to walk in his light, to follow him, to place our trust in him. Not uh, to just wait on more light, but to act on the light that you've already been given. Whatever that next step might be. Whether that's taking a look at who he is, what he said, and what he says about himself in the Gospels. Maybe looking at how that actually reveals God by his actions, his words, and how his responses are to others. Or maybe simply looking at how he calls us to respond to his teaching. What it might actually look like to act on the light and the knowledge we've already been given. Yet John foreshadowed that the response to Jesus being the light isn't exactly what we would expect. At the beginning in chapter 1, he says, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He's saying there's a disconnect, and the disconnect is on our end. That's the second thing Jesus has a message about, a message about ourselves. See, in verse 46, right after he says that Jesus comes as the light, uh, he gives a reason why. So that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness or in other translations, remain in darkness. You see, he isn't, Jesus isn't just talking about darkness as this potential future reality that might happen, but a present reality that we already experience. Jesus is saying darkness is actually our default state apart from faith in him. But what does that actually mean? Well, take a look at the context. In verse 35, Jesus says, The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Now, in case I was ever in danger of doubting that, I got a really memorable reminder uh, a few years back. It was in the winter, and I apparently needed an extra layer uh, of clothing for my closet, but as I left my room, I didn't fully close the closet door. Went back to the living room, the kitchen. A couple hours later, I decided to head on back for something. But what I needed to get was beyond my closet door in my room, and by this time, the sun had set. And so as I walk into my room, I walk through the doors, ignoring the light switch on my right, and took a hard left 
right into the side of my closet door. Now, when I say that, I don't mean the paneled surface that faces out in the room or the opposite side. We're talking like the side of the door, the really hard part that doesn't give when you run right into it face first. First, I heard it. Then I felt it. Then my roommates started to hear something from me. Now, if you'd asked me, I would have told you, I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. But in the darkness, I was clueless about how to safely get there. Even though I knew the floor plan of my room, I couldn't safely navigate it without that light. You see, I didn't know that where I was stepping, where I thought was the right direction, was actually the way to pain. And the reason why is I didn't think I needed that light. I had my own light to walk by, you might say. I'd, I'd walked this path before without incidents. I'd, I could remember the way. I knew that I was walking right by that switch but I thought, you know what? I know what I'm doing. I don't need that. And I mentioned that story because for some of us, we've been walking another path for so long, living the same way that we always have been living, that we don't really think we need any other light besides our own. We look at our own understanding, our own experiences to be what guides us. Maybe we've developed coping mechanisms that, that we think will lead us to greater joy or, or freedom from pain, but in the end they just isolate us, they numb us, they distract us from what remains unchanged while leading us to greater pain in the long run. Maybe it's our approach to relationships or to work. Maybe how we handle disagreements or perceived hurts. Maybe it's what we're living for that we're expecting to give us life but is never delivering. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Jesus is telling us that we may think we know where we're going and how to get there, but we may not really. We're actually walking in darkness, trying to figure this life out without him. And walking in darkness is a fitting metaphor because Scripture often refers to darkness as an image of sin. Sin could simply be described as trying to find life apart from God as the giver of life, or using his good gifts contrary to his good ways or apart from his good purposes. Jesus is saying that we need his light to live by, to, to guide us and to reveal God to us, because the way that comes more naturally is actually the way of darkness, the way of sin. And yet the testimony of Scripture is that because of our own darkness, we desperately need Jesus' light and yet instead prefer the darkness. It's what we read in John 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. In other words, there's something about us that wants to continue walking in that darkness, which means the light doesn't necessarily have the effect that you think it would. Look at verse 37 referring to Jesus' ministry that included healing the sick and raising the dead. John writes, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. You see, Jesus came as a light, but the sun is also a light. And the same sun that will melt chocolate has the very opposite effect. It will harden clay. To paraphrase John's Isaiah references, those who in their darkness don't want to see God's light not only will not, but in the end become blinded to it, hardened or deadened against it. But the darkness actually runs deeper than merely our ability to see what's true. 
Beginning in verse 42, John tells us, At the same time, many among the, even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. The reality is that some that believed that Jesus was the Christ, he was the Messiah, but they wouldn't confess it out of fear. Not fear for losing their life, not afraid that they might be mistaken and accidentally dishonor God, but because they love the praise that comes from people, or literally the glory that comes from people, more than that of God. They counted the cost of becoming Jesus' followers and found the cost too rich for their blood, too costly. What this actually shows us is that we can believe true things about Jesus, but not love him, which means we don't really love God. Now we may say, well, yes I do. The reality is, not as much as you love something else. And as Jesus teaches elsewhere, the supreme command in all of God's law is to love him supremely. A command which, if we're honest, we constantly break. And knowing this about us, Jesus' message comes with a warning. He says in verse 48, There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. Jesus is saying a time will come that we will all be judged and judged by the light that we've already been given. And the truth is we've all been given light. Francis Schaeffer once illustrated this by asking you to imagine that since the day you were born, there was an invisible recording device that's followed you ever since and only captures your moral judgments about others. In other words, every time you've been driving and shouted about how another driver should be driving on your road, every time that someone's been late to a meeting and you've muttered about just how inconsiderate they were, every time that you've heard someone yell at their child or their spouse and said to yourself, that's just so wrong, every time you've witnessed someone judging the heart or the motives of another and just thought, why are you so judgmental? Every time that you've thought to yourself, she is such a gossip, or he's so lazy, the recording begins and captures it. You see, we make those statements because of the light that we do have, because we know that there's a way that we actually ought to live. And so Schaefer asks us now to imagine at the end of time you're standing before God and he says to you, we'll just let your own words be the standard of how you're judged. Let's just see how well you, you measure up to your own beliefs about how people are supposed to live. And then they push play. And you hear the recording as thousands and thousands of moral judgments, ones that you've made yourself, are replayed. And every single time you wince and you grimace as it reminds you of a time that you did not live up to your own stand of right living. You see, the reality is nobody could stand that judgment. None of us could live up even to our own standards of morality. And God's standard is no less rigorous than our own. Every one of us would stand condemned because the darkness actually runs that deep. You see, you put it together, Jesus' message about us, about humanity, is that our default condition is that darkness. That we don't really see things as clearly as we think we do. That our sense of confidence in ourself is actually overrated. And that walking by it, we're actually lost walking by our own light in ways we don't know, leading to unexpected pain. That we're blind in ways that we can't even see. And yet, what we do see, what we do know to be right and good and true, is not the way that we always live. You see, we don't even measure up to our own standards, let alone God's standard of judgment. And because of the darkness in our own heart, because of our own sin, 
the light that we need is not always the light that we want. We desperately need Jesus' light, and yet desperately fear it. It's like we can't live with it and can't live without it. And to believe this message of Jesus, this message about ourselves, would actually leave us utterly humbled and yet fully ready for the message of the cross. Just look at verse 27. Jesus twice there makes reference to this hour. It's the reason why he says that he, his heart is troubled, but also the reason that he says that he came. And in John's gospel, whenever Jesus talks about his hour, it's always a reference to his death. And then in verse 32, he talks about it being the time for him to be lifted up from the earth, which the next verse confirms is an explanation of how he would die, lifted up on the cross, an event that Jesus says would have the effect of drawing all peoples to himself. Not just the Jewish peoples, but all peoples, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That also means that if what draws you to Jesus has nothing to do with the cross, it may be something other than Jesus that you're drawn to. Because for Jesus, the cross was central to his message and his mission. And here's why. Jesus has already said in verse 27 that the time of his death was now. But then in verse 31, he says now is the time for judgment. He's not talking about two different events. He's actually talking about one. You see, the time of Jesus' death on the cross was also the time of judgment. And the reason why that he would have this effect of drawing all people to himself by that cross is that when he came into the world, it was not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. Not for his own sins, because in him there was no darkness at all, but for the sins of all who would believe in him. That's why he says in verse 47, For I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save it. And the way he would do so is through the cross. Taking the judgment that your sin deserved so that you can receive the love and acceptance that Jesus deserved. Not because you've prayed enough or given enough or obeyed enough, because his light shows you that you could never do enough to earn any of those things. And yet only when you believe that will you put your trust in Jesus as the light, believing that because of your own darkness there is no other hope, and yet rejoicing that he's the only hope that you need. That's the offer on the table. And here's what that means for the world. Whatever your background, whatever you have done, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in his light rather than your own, his path rather than yours, righteousness over your own, God moves your judgment day from the future to the past, to the day that Jesus spoke of, to the day of his cross, such that the judgment and condemnation for all of your sins has already happened. And it didn't fall on you. It fell on Jesus. And when you come to believe that your judgment day has already passed and what it cost Jesus to make it happen, that does something to you. First, it makes you incredibly honest. It means that you can be truthful and realistic about your sin, about the darkness inside of you, not just those other people. You don't have to convince yourself or anyone else that you're one of the good people because you know there's no hope for that. You don't have to pretend to have it all together anymore. You can stop hiding from others, avoiding accountability, avoiding being known, because the one who knows you at your worst is the one who actually loved you the best. Second, it makes you incredibly humble. 
Jesus' light exposes all of us as spiritual and moral failures. You see, knowing that the death that Jesus died is what your sin deserves removes any sense of self-righteousness that you might have before another, which means you no longer have a place to stand to look down on anyone else. Third, it gives you a tremendous confidence because the price of God's judgment, which you might otherwise fear, has already been paid. We're using the Old Testament image. The cup of God's wrath for your sin has already been fully poured out on Jesus. Every last drop. So there's nothing left for you. But it also means you no longer are working for God's approval, but from God's approval which gives you confidence before God and and frees you from being paralyzed by the opinions of others. Finally, it actually changes your character. You see, when you acknowledge the darkness inside of you, trusting in Jesus as the light that you actually need, Jesus says you become sons of light, a phrase meaning someone who displays the ethical qualities of that light, becomes a disciple of the light. Or in English, putting your trust in Jesus actually starts to change you from the inside out, changing your character, making you more and more like Christ, changing your desires, resulting in a changed life. You see, when you've seen and believed this message of the cross, the message that your judgment day can be moved from the future to the past, it changes everything. I think we've got a picture here for you of James Quentin Stevens. On November 10th of 1982, back when he was only 18 years old, James Quentin Stevens entered Lake Braddock Secondary School in Burke, Virginia, intending to kill others and then himself. He began shooting erratically into an office, down the hall and out the window, but somehow hit no one. By the time I arrived at that school, Stevens said, I didn't see human beings, I saw prey. The crazy thing is, when I shot, I shot above their heads, and I don't know why. He took ten hostages, firing at the ceiling to prove that this was not a drill. Police arrived, and a harrowing 21 hours of negotiations ensued. The night before the shooting, Stevens had nearly attempted suicide in his home. He said that he had been interrupted by voices that told him that to find peace, he must drive to the school to kill others first. Stevens felt that to banish the voices, he either had to carry out the murders or kill himself. At the school, hostages looked on as Stevens placed the barrel of a Mossberg hunting rifle in his mouth. Stevens recounts that one of the hostages, a woman, said, quote, a woman, quote, fell down on her face, screaming and crying. He says, I jerked my head over with the barrel and still in my mouth. She said, don't do this. You don't have to do this. You haven't hurt anyone but it was her necklace more than her words that caught his attention. When he heard her scream, it was the gold cross swaying from her neck that gleamed under the ceiling light, catching his eye. As soon as that cross met my eyes, it confronted my sin, he said. He then yelled at the woman to get out. But what began that very minute, Stephen said, was a conversion from darkness to light. He saw a vision of a robed arm reaching into his darkness, offering him a hand. Stephen said, I reached for his hand, and as soon as I did, my heart became human again. There were no more voices. I had empathy for the people around me. I could feel their pain. Even the hostages could see the change. Stevens began gradually releasing the rest of the hostages until police arrested him. It was only after that, while in prison, 
facing the reality of his own darkness, that Stevens cried out to God, screaming a confession of sins into his pillow. He prayed, Lord, I have shown the world what I can do with this life. Now you take it and show the world what you can do with it. There in prison he repented, trusting in Jesus as the light of the world and received salvation. What he found was rather than a God who would kick him to the curb, he found one who pursued him, revealed himself to him, and would soon restore him. Four and a half years following his arrest, Stevens was released and began his transition back to society. Today he's a husband and he's a father of two and is part of a church in Winchester, Virginia, where he volunteers as a sound technician and a musician. A Washington Post reporter wanting to write a story about Stevens said to him, I've never found anyone else your age who has changed their life as dramatically. We want to know what changed you. Carolyn McCulley, who directed a documentary about him, was fascinated to hear from an attempted mass shooter who survived to serve his time and then goes on to live what he calls a normal But his background was anything but normal. His stepfather was abusive, and over the years, Stephen's anger and desire for revenge only accumulated. The trauma that he endured made him feel utterly powerless, and he trusted no one, creating the perfect conditions for the darkness inside to grow into what almost happened at that school. And yet in the end, Jesus' light would shine brighter than the darkness. Stevens now shares his story in hope of reaching similarly troubled people, to draw them out of their darkness and to help root out the seeds of rage before they can germinate. He has spoken at drug rehab centers and at churches, including his own, and he often books Christian bands for concerts in order to raise money for causes from children's medical bills to homeless outreach. One day, having just shared his story at his home church, he met Bethany Searfoss, who had been evacuated from uh, the same school by a SWAT team the day that he took hostages. On stage in front of the entire congregation, he asked for her forgiveness, and forgiveness was granted. Referring to the 4,300 students who were in the school that day, Stevens said, after apologizing to Searfoss, I quote, only have 4,299 more students to go. Despite the many times that he wished to die, he now says he knows why God let him live. Quote, my purpose is to love people. I never knew that he was going to use my life this way. Every day I have is a gift because I was a dead man walking. But as Stevens found out, Jesus is in the business of granting new life, even eternal life. You see, as the light of the world, Jesus comes to us, just like he came to Stevens, revealing both what's true about God and what's true about ourselves. But then rather than just leaving us in despair, he offers to take our guilt and shame upon him, upon that cross, moving our judgment day from the future to the past so that we can walk in newness of life, inviting us by that very cross to experience a radical love that can't help but overflow into the lives of others. That's Jesus' closer, a message for the world that changes everything. Let me pray for us. Father, today we come to you as 
as those who need your light, the light that you offer in Christ. Father, we also come today confessing that in a very real way, we often prefer the darkness to your light. Father, we are people that live with guilt and shame and fear and seeing all of that. You did not move against us. You did not uh, move away from us. You moved towards us in the cross through Jesus Christ so that our judgment day could be moved from the future to the past to change us, to liberate us, to lead us into a new life. Father, as we meet with you at this table, restore the joy, the salvation that you offer by the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.